Well, good morning, everybody. If you're watching this on the screen, it's because I'm still COVID positive. Uh, so I'm sad that I can't be with you in person. Uh, but uh, let's uh, hear God's word together as we uh, continue to hear from this uh, very confronting book of James. As I said last week, James is a very practical, down-to-earth book. He pulls no punches and uh, we will be uh, called up to um, high things uh, as we hear uh, his word to us. So we're up to James chapter 2. And uh, if you've read the book of James, you may have noticed that 2 verse 1 is one of only two times that James uses the actual name of Jesus in his letter. But here in this verse, he mentions him in a way that's sufficient to cover the whole letter. See how he uses his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the word Lord there alludes to his divinity, his identity with the Lord, Yahweh of the Old Testament. Christ is his title, identifying him as the promised son of David who establishes the kingdom of God forever. As Peter declared at Pentecost, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So see that title, Lord Jesus Christ, is firmly grounded in the actual actions of the person of Jesus in his life, death and resurrection. But that's, that's not enough for the point that he's making here. He adds a description, glorious. Now, Jesus prayed just before his crucifixion, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And earlier in his gospel, John tells us in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the full display of the glory of God. This glory was glimpsed by the prophets, shrouded by a cloud on Mount Sinai, only revealed in part to Moses, and even that made his face shine. The glory filled the temple at its dedication, preventing the priests from entering. Stephen says in Acts 7 that the God of glory appeared to Abraham, revealing to him his salvation plan for all of humanity. And when he was about to be stoned for saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of that plan, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Acts 7.55, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This Lord of glory stepped into his creation with his glory veiled in human flesh, except to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear. He gave signs of his glory in his miracles. Uh, he gave a greater insight into this divine majesty to Peter, James and John on the mountain and they had to fall on their faces in fear. But ultimately his full glory was displayed in the ultimate expression of love as he laid down his life for his friends and for his enemies. 
He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified just before going to the cross. Now, raised up and given the name above every name with all authority in heaven and earth from the Father, he's bringing everything into subjection to his rule. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord through the glory of God the Father. Now, this portrait of Jesus is the foundation, then, for James's command in the same verse, do not show favoritism. Now, we need to note the wording he uses here. He says, uh, those of you who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the little word, the, is all important. The faith. It makes faith a noun, not a verb. It's not the action of my personal trust in Jesus that he's highlighting, but the content of what I believe about Jesus. It's the gospel that I've heard and received, which has been implanted in me, and I'm called to keep hearing and obeying, as we saw in chapter 1. It's because the gospel shows us Jesus, the Lord of glory, that we should not show favoritism. Now, using worldly logic, this would be a reason to show favoritism. If you keep company with the highest authority in the universe, well, your status is also high. The business you're on is all important. Your reputation should be preserved at all costs. So you need to be careful about those with whom you associate. The great people of the world need to show favoritism in order to preserve their greatness. Yet the glorious Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and became a servant. He showed his status as the greatest in the kingdom of God by being a servant of all. He kept company with the lowly. He sullied his reputation amongst the self-righteous and respectable. And his call was unambiguous. If anyone was to follow him, they must become as a little child, to be counted as the least, to even become, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Who are the truly great in God's eyes? Well, verse 5 tells us, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? See, true wealth comes not from being rich or poor in this world, but from being an heir of the kingdom. So to consider worldly wealth and the power that comes with it as being true riches is to side with those in the world who use their wealth and power to oppose the kingdom of God. For a Christian to show favoritism shows that we're losing sight of this glorious truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Grace brings everyone to the same level, the level of being undeserving. The Bible doesn't point to the image of God as a basis for the equality of human beings. What it does point to is that all, without exception, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and can only be justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus. So sin and grace take away the basis of any favoritism. But more than that, because grace sets us free to love as he loved us, it's not only the fact of our equality in sin and grace that should compel us to treat one another with dignity, but the love of Christ, the Lord of glory, who so loved us that he showed no favoritism towards us. Us who are both mere creatures in comparison to him, but also sinful rebels and enemies. We are masters of creating divisions, aren't we? Putting people on different levels. For James's readers, the pressing issue was wealth and social status. But that's one of the many lines that we draw between people. Lines between gender, age, education, marital status, job, and the list could go on. Of the many ways that we put others down in order to lift ourselves up. But being justified by grace through faith demolishes demolishes all that. Legalism. Legalism, a presumption of being able to justify justify myself by the law, that's what produces division. Legalism demands that people conform and that they separate themselves from those who don't conform. But justification by faith puts everyone on that even footing, equally a sinner, equally saved by grace. The only division in the end is those who live by faith in the Son of God and those who refuse him. So your status here is not changed in any way by what your status might be out there. Here in the church, we are all equal through faith in Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But being not legalistic, doesn't mean we no longer want to obey the law. Look at verse 8. Now, James uses a number of words to describe the law. In 1 verse 25, it's the perfect law and the law of liberty. Here, it's the royal law. And there are two senses in which he uses this word, royal. Firstly, the command to love my neighbour as myself is the command that rules all the commands. Every command that tells me how to relate to my fellow human beings is simply an outworking of this one. So the royal law here is specifically this command. Keep that, have that rule embedded in your heart so that it pushes out the drive to love yourself and you'll end up keeping every other one. Secondly, the word royal continues that theme of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is the law of the king. And by that I mean it's the law by which the king lives. In Israel, unlike other nations, the king didn't make the law. His word wasn't final. He couldn't make irrevocable decrees like Nebuchadnezzar could or Caesar could. The king of Israel had to write out his own copy of God's law to which he himself was subject, just like every other Israelite. He was to remember that he was simply a brother, 
to the Israelites so that his heart wouldn't be lifted up above them. You can see that in Deuteronomy 17. That's why the moral state of Israel in the Old Testament was measured by the moral state of the king because his obedience was to look no different to that of the people. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the true King of Israel, is the only king who has perfectly kept and embodied this instruction. He's the one king who looked at the citizens of his kingdom and called them neighbours, brothers, friends, who loved them by laying down his life for them. And now this king says, love one another as I have loved you. Our status as royal priesthood, reigning with Christ, means not only do we share in his victory over sin and death and the devil, we also share in his mandate of love. Love is the command that rules and interprets all the others. And James shows this when he references two commands about adultery and murder in verse 11. And it's no coincidence that these are the two that Jesus zoomed in on on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, James does it a lot in his letter. Uh, he echoes Jesus. Surprise, surprise. It's no coincidence that uh, these two commands are the ones that Jesus talks about, as I said, in the Sermon on the Mount, and highlighting that it's not just the physical actions that breach the commands, but what goes on in the heart, the desire that we saw in 1 verse 14, that when conceived, gives birth to sin, and then matures into death. So someone might be morally upstanding, faithful in marriage, or celibate outside of marriage, with self-discipline to guard their eyes and to treat every person who isn't their own spouse with holy respect. They may be models of this in their community and church, but if they show, show partiality, what have they done? They've considered their brother or sister as less than them and themselves as too worthy to sit with them. They've essentially hated their brother or sister, which makes them a murderer. This royal law, the law of the king, it initially comes and condemns us and binds us to judgment. That's its primary purpose, to force us into a corner where our only option is to flee to the mercy of Christ in his cross. But for those in Christ, the law becomes, as he calls it in verse 12, the law of liberty. A renewed heart and mind can look at the law and see in it the heart of God. We can delight in its commands. We can revel at the thought that the Spirit of Christ has set us free to love. It sees it as a privilege to lay our lives down for the gospel and for our brothers and sisters. It seeks to outdo others in showing honour, to bless those who persecute, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It relishes the idea of owing no one anything except the debt to love. Now verse 13 gives us these two ways of living, the way of legalism and the way of grace. The first half of that verse, if you live with legalism, you'll live without mercy. 
without consideration for anyone but yourself, showing favoritism in order to lift yourself up. And you'll reap what you sow, judgment from God without mercy, because you've judged your neighbour without mercy. That kind of life shows you don't actually know the Father, even though you might adamantly claim that you do. On the other hand, if you see that the mercy of God has triumphed over judgment in Christ, the second part of that verse, that his judgment was turned aside from you and placed on Jesus, that Jesus received judgment so that you may receive mercy, then you too, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, will be a person of mercy and your life will match your profession. Which brings us to the second half of this chapter, verses 14 to 26. And see how these, this matter of faith and works flows directly out of what I've just been saying. So he brings us back again in verse 14 to faith, which as we saw isn't just a claim of personal trust in God, but an, an affirmation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem isn't someone who truly believes but refuses to put their faith into practice. He's talking here about someone who speaks words, publicly claiming to believe the gospel, but their actions say something else. And James will zoom in later in his letter on how we use our words, our tongue. The example in verses 15 and 16 of helping a brother or sister in need, it's not here primarily as a command to help the poor, but as an analogy. The call to show love has already been impressed upon us, and so it's a handy example illustrating this principle of living faith. Speaking kind words to a person won't meet their physical need. Claiming to have concern for them is no good unless there's action. We know that's true. Only a fool would, exp would suggest that speaking warmth and food will cause it to be provided. So likewise, only a fool would think that mere words are the same as authentic, real faith that's going to result in righteous living. So the core issue here isn't Christians who don't practice what they believe. It's people who confess to believe the gospel, but who lack fruit in keeping with repentance. Because we'll always practice what we believe. No exception. Our head will inform our heart, and our heart will move our hands. Our actions will always be an indication of what's in our heart. And what's in our heart will always be an outworking of what we believe to be true. That's why the Father, in his infinite wisdom, brings genuine living faith to birth in our hearts as the Spirit works in us, in conjunction with us comprehending the word of Christ. A mind that hears and understands the gospel is never separate from a heart that believes and trusts in the Jesus of the gospel. And a heart that believes and trusts is never separate from the members of our body that act out what we believe. So to those whose life doesn't match their confession of faith, the call isn't 
to try and change your behaviour because that'll just be an external, legalistic, superficial change. The call is to ensure that the faith we profess is actually genuine, Christ-centred faith founded on the truth that we've received in his word. If our actions don't match our confession of faith, then the problem isn't that we're not living out our faith or that we don't have faith at all. The problem is that we are living out a faith of some sort, but it's a dead faith. And the dead faith is then producing dead works, which don't match our confession of the living, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. True faith and works and James here means, when he uses the word works, uh, he means works of the law, righteous works. They're not two separate things that can exist independently or exclusively of each other. Living faith will be active and righteous acts must always be rooted in living faith. So he then gives an answer to those who might suggest that it's okay for different people to give different expressions to their Christianity, one that's based on belief and another that's based on actions in verse 18. One person might say, I believe in God, but it's a private personal faith. I don't like to impose it on others. This person isn't concerned with how the gospel shapes all they do in life, including the non-religious parts. So show me your faith apart from your works means if you merely claim to be a Christian, that's enough, even if there's no fruit in your life to indicate it. Well, someone else might say, I'm not interested in theology or doctrine. What's important is to walk the talk and show people the gospel by actions, not words. This person sees the gospel more as an ethical code than as the announcement of the good news of Jesus. And often from my experience, when, when you dig deeper into someone who says that, they actually know very little of the gospel. So I will show you my faith by my works means if you just live a good life, doesn't matter in the end what you believe. See, James is being critical of both views here. Both separate faith, both separate faith and works and make them stand alone, making one to be more important than the other, denying that inescapable relationship between the two that I've already talked about. Both of these people have a faulty faith. The first believes something that has no transforming power in their life because it hasn't led them to repentance. And the second believes something, but it's not concerned with bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ because the focus is on their works, not on his. And Jesus demonstrates this in a shocking way in verse 19. This statement is devastating to anyone who considered their faith to be founded in the Jewish affirmation of the uniqueness and absolute sovereignty of their God. That which distinguished the Jews from every other nation was their monotheism. Summed up in the opening words of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was the pivotal statement that defined their identity. It was a confession as significant to the Jew as the confession Jesus is Lord is to Christians. 
What's devastating is he says even the demons don't have faith apart from works. They know and believe the truth that God is the one true God and they know what that means. It means that they stand under his judgment and so their actions match what they believe. They tremble in fear. So if demons know the truth and act accordingly, how much more should those who are made in the image of God? And we have the example of the great heroes of the faith to demonstrate that true faith is never apart from works in verses 21 to 25. Now, when James uses the word justify here, it could lead us to be confused if we have a too narrow definition of that word. James uses the word justify a number of times and on face value it might appear as if he's rejecting the doctrine of justification through faith alone. However, as we saw a few weeks ago in our previous series, the same word is used in 1 Timothy 3.16 of Jesus. He was justified in the spirit. We understand this doesn't mean Jesus needed to be justified from unrighteousness, but in that context, the word means vindicate, to declare or show someone to be righteous. Jesus was already righteous in the eyes of the Father, and the work of the Spirit in testifying to his death and resurrection brings this righteousness into clear focus and makes it undeniable. And this is what we see in these references to Abraham and Rahab. So first, Abraham. When he encountered the God of glory and God declared himself to be his sovereign and very great reward and he reiterated the promise about his descendants, we're told that Abraham believed God, verse 23. Now both the Hebrew of Genesis 15:6, where that happens, and the Greek of James's quote, don't word it in a way that his faith is the cause of the gift of righteousness. It simply reads, Abraham believed God, God credited to him righteousness. See, faith wasn't a reason for God crediting righteousness. Instead, the righteousness that God gave was really the reason for Abraham's faith. Abraham believed in response to the gift of righteousness from God. He received the righteousness of God by grace. He was a justified person by the action of God. Yet, this gift didn't produce a static, cerebral belief, but a transformed life in which head, heart and hands all became active in living out this gifted righteousness. Abraham couldn't just say, I believe, and leave it at that. God's righteousness is dynamic and won't allow that to happen. If God gives us his righteousness, it will work its way in and through us and out of us because his righteousness is always given to us in a personal way. It's the righteousness of Christ, the Son. So when, 40 years later, God told him to sacrifice his only son, he obeyed in faith that God himself would provide the lamb. And even if he didn't, 
he knew that God could even raise his son from the dead. So sure he was in the reliability of God's promises. This action of living faith is a demonstration that the righteousness he'd received was real, living and active. So Abraham was justified by works, vindicated by his works, here in the sense of being proven to be righteous. Secondly, Rahab. Now, this is an interesting choice for James to use. He could have picked so many heroes of the faith. Rahab was a woman, a prostitute, and a Gentile, in three ways opposite to Abraham, and especially in the eyes of a male moral Jew of the time, on the bottom of the heap, in terms of what could be assessed as righteous. Yet James affirms that, just like Abraham, Rahab's faith received righteousness was displayed in a transformed life and righteous works. Even if we try to argue that at least Abraham was a good person before God called him, which we can't, by the way, but some try and argue that, well, we definitely can't use that argument with Rahab. There's no way that her action of saving the spies would have atoned for her whole life as a sinner and an idolater, making her suddenly righteous in God's eyes. No, her actions were the outworking of the gift of faith that was already there from God. Because you know what she told the spies? She said she had already heard of the mighty acts of God in bringing Israel out of Egypt and that he had already given them the land. She had heard the word already and believed it, not only to be a true record of events, but she believed that the God who saved Israel would also be able to save her. And so her actions followed accordingly. Would Rahab have been welcome in the church that James was writing to? Would she be welcome here? Would we categorise her in any other way than we would a successful businessman or someone like Abraham, a respected member of society? Did you know that Rahab is in the family tree of King David and therefore of Jesus himself. We could see that as a scandal or as an amazing testimony to the transforming power of God's gift of righteousness that any person, regardless of their standing in the world, is a sinner who can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus and that that gift of faith received by faith is a real living faith that actually transforms that person uh, to begin living a life that's pleasing to him. So the key question for us today isn't, will you go out and start doing more good works? But is your faith truly in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Does the word of his gospel shape your mind and heart and lead you daily to repentance and faith in the grace of God? Are you training your head and your heart by immersing yourself in his word so that your hands and feet will follow to the glory of God? Let's pray.
Father, what a privilege it is to know that we stand before you counted as righteous, not because of anything we have done or could ever do, but purely because of the merits of your Son, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who lived on our behalf the life that we have failed to live, who died for us the death that we deserve, uh, who united himself to us so that we might be one in his death and in his glorious resurrection and one with him as he rules and reigns over your creation. Father, our desire is that we might be people who live for your glory. We desire that the faith that you have placed within our hearts, no matter how small, even though it may be the size of a mustard seed, that it might be a faith that produces works, works that uh, enable us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, works that enable us to love our neighbours as ourselves, works that enable us to love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus has loved us, willing even to lay down our lives and to submit to one another in love. We pray, Father, that you'll fill us with your spirit and that our lives will be a transformed trophy to your grace and your goodness and that all we do, all we say might be a testimony uh, to the power of your grace at work in us as our faith uh, expresses itself in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, all been well. I hope to see you again uh, very soon. Um, please uh, don't forget Friday nights, the Friday feed will be back on again this coming Friday. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you there. God bless. Bye.